If you look at how people behave, tribe or group or locality has always been our default, right? I think public social media, when we look back in 50 years, probably will have been an anomaly, right? It probably will have been the exception to the rule. The big public water cooler is, is an oddity. Social Pros listeners, we have not one, but two familiar voices on the show today. You just heard, of course, the amazing Chris Penn. We're going to hear more about him in just a minute. But of course, we are joined by the amazing, the fabulous, my favorite, Jay Bear. Jay, welcome back to the mic for this very special episode. Thanks. I feel like it's an after-school special. Uh, I, am, I am back and temporarily to uh, help you uh, peer into the deep crevasses of the mind of Chris Penn. This is a great episode. And as Chris said there at the beginning, how brands think about online community and the lessons they can learn from those communities has to change. It's already changing, but but this next year is going to be the time when uh, we really shift what is the most important element of quote unquote social media. And we'll learn a lot about that here in this episode. Yeah, there is so much that we unpack. Of course, we start off with uh, Chris's wheelhouse, which is all the amazing analytics insights that he's working with all the time, how social pros should be thinking about analytics, talking about, you know, Jay, as you just mentioned, private social networks. I mean, we talk about so much. And then we even, of course, end on this um, with uh, a lot of data privacy laws that social pros really need to know going into 2023. There is so much packed into this episode. It is amazing. You're going to love it. And uh, we will eventually figure out if this is Chris's third or fourth time. Jay, are you going to take bets? Yeah, we got to talk to the team about that. Uh, we got to use some of our own analytics. We got we to eat our own dog food, as they say, and uh, figure out uh, how many times Chris has been on the show. But we'll figure it out next time he's back here on Social Pros. That sounds good. You know, we have to give a huge thank you to all of you Social Pros listeners. And of course, to Jay, since you're here, too. Thank you as well. Um, because without you all, of course, uh, we would not have placed first uh, at this year's Content Marketing Awards. Um, the Social Pros podcast, of course, placed first in Best Podcast Audio Series. So thank you, Jay. And thank you, um, all of our amazing Social Pros listeners and all of our amazing partners, partners like ICUC. ICUC are experts in online and social media community management. And they're here to remind the world that there are real humans behind brands. ICUC creates a space where tech meets human power by moderating, listening, and holding real conversations with customers on behalf of enterprise brands at a global scale. Head to icuc.social right now to see how they can support you. That is icuc.social. And of course, Social Pros listeners, time is very precious. That is why we at the Convincing Convert team have developed a free social media audit bundle for you. That includes a couple of things that you are absolutely going to want to download right now, which is a social media evaluation checklist, the nine social media metrics that matter ebook, a content calendar template, and a social media policy template. Download your free bundle today, right now at bit.ly slash social audit bundle. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash social audit bundle, all lowercase. And now let's get into it. All of the amazing conversations with Christopher S. Penn, Chief Data Scientist at Trust Insights. Like gum on your shoe, you can't get rid of me that easily. It's Jay Bear back for a guest appearance here on the Big Social Pros podcast. You know, when I co-founded this show some 10 million years ago, or whatever it was, I did it because I was told there would be no math. Yet... 
We continue to bring Christopher S. Penn back on the show, a man who loves math the way I love tequila. Chris is the chief data scientist and co-founder of Trust Insights, returning to the podcast for his third or fourth time. We don't even have that math correct. That's how bad we are at it here on the show. But Anna and I are fabulously excited to talk to the one, the only Chris Penn. Chris, welcome back to Social Pros. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, you know, it's a funny tidbit. I don't like math either, and I was really bad at it. In fact, in college, I did not pass college statistics. I, uh, I actually, um, thankfully, the school graded on a curve because I, my final score in that class was 37 out of 100. For people who are considering hiring Trust Insights in the future, do not let that set you <laughs> on a path of less confidence. Uh, and, and I and the team at Convince Convert have worked with Chris and his squad at Trust Insights many times with great success, despite Chris's manifest lack of ability in college statistics courses. To that end, Chris, um, take a second, <laughs> if you would, and and uh, sum up for our huge audience what Trust Insights does, because it is, in fact, a different kind of consultancy. We are indeed a consulting firm. We focus a lot on helping people make better decisions with their data. Uh, including using the data that you have, um, working with stakeholders to understand what the data is saying, uh, and ultimately getting people to to make decisions. Because one of the problems that I, we see all the time is that you have binders full of PowerPoints and reports and, and slides and stuff like that. And it just sits there and people are like, well, we did the data. Yeah, but you didn't do anything with it. It's like you put in all this stuff into Google Maps, but you haven't actually gotten in the car to go anywhere. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm trying to do. It's like, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? You, but you, you do need to you know, turn the car on and start driving. Do you think the issue is that people believe or have been led to believe by the business press or society at large that the data is in and of itself a victory? That The fact that they have this is like, wow, we've got, well, we even talked about it, right? We've said this maybe on the show before. Um, big data, quote unquote, is like used as like some sort of success metric. We got all this big data, but all it is is just a bunch of ones and zeros unless you put it into practice. Yeah, it, it is. And to be fair, data is an ingredient, right? Um, if you have no ingredients, then yeah, you, you, you're not going to cook anything, right? You're going you're gonna to be hungry. Um, so just having ingredients for some organizations absolutely is a victory. However, if you are trying to make, say, steak and you just have raw beef and you have no salt, you have no pepper, no garlic, you don't have a grill um, stuff, you, you technically do have steak, but it's going to be very chewy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and some people like it that rare. Um, but there's other things that go into that besides the ingredient. But yeah, absolutely. If you had no steak at all, then yeah, you, you, you're, you're not eating. So there is that element. And I use a ton of cooking analogies uh, because it's, it's something that most folks can can appreciate. Um, and when you think about it, though, you, you need the steak, but you need to, a way to cook it. You need to have the other ingredients go with it. You need to know how to cook steak. Like people who cook steak well done, I have a philosophical disagreement with. I think, um, you know, unless it's really bad, a really bad cut of meat or that's like, you know, it's like rotten. You, you, you don't need to go much past medium rare. Um, you need a recipe. You need an outcome and you need a person who can actually do the cooking part, right? You know, it doesn't matter if you do it sous vide, if you do it on the grill, if you do it in a smoker. Somebody's got to know what they're doing. And data is the same way. 
you have all these great tools, Google Analytics, Adobe Analytics, Tableau, all these, uh, they're like appliances, right? Like your grill. You've got the data from your website, your social media accounts, your uh, whatever. You still need an outcome, right? What are you cooking, right? If, if you have steak, the, the meat, if you have a, a, a nice, you know, uh, porterhouse cut and you have a blender, something's going to be going, so this is not going to, it's not going to turn out well. Um, but if you have uh, tofu and you want steak, again, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a rough day, a rough day in the kitchen. So like that, go ahead, Jay. I was just going to ask you if you think the issue then uh, most often or more often, if you will, is that people uh, don't actually have a recipe. So they've got a bunch of data and they're trying to figure out what it means or they know what they want to get out of the data, but they don't have the right data. Does that make sense? It, it's all of the above. It's every possible combination you can think of, right? I have the data and I don't know what to do with it. I have a preconceived notion of what I want, which is the, one of the worst case scenarios. Like I need data that proves that Facebook is where we should be spending our time. Well, uh, I'm sorry that the data may prove that that's not actually true. And if you have this preconceived notion, you're going to create serious problems. Um, you may have data, you may have, you may not have the tools to analyze it properly, right? Um, you may not have the people who have the insights to know what the data means, right? It'd be like handing Google Maps to a two-year-old. Like, yeah, it's colorful, but they don't know what to do with the information. Right? It's just colorful. Yeah. So in terms of what you're saying, first off, love, before I jump into my question, love the, the cooking analogy because, uh, yes, uh, everybody, I think, understands that and, and the ingredients. And I'm getting a really clear visual about everything that comes together to make this big picture happen. But I'm just curious where, especially when you're working with clients, are you seeing some of these issues originating from? Is it, and not to even point the finger at anybody, but is it typically somebody just has a question or is it just like Jay had mentioned like, oh, we have all this data. Hooray. The issue of data and understanding it and processing it has, is really not new, but it's something that continues to plague organizations. So I'm just curious from your perspective, where is some of the impetus of this coming from? It, all starts with the human beings. The, the people are the problem, right? Humanity is the problem in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. We can get on like many. Oh, tangents, it, but yeah. it totally is. We'll have, we'll have to have like social pros after dark and have the ranting about uh, all about. <laughs> yes. Um, but and this is the thing that my, my partner and CEO, Katie Robert, talks about a lot is you need to have these very clear user stories, you know, as a blank. I need to blank so that blank, um, you know, as a podcaster, I need to understand what platforms people are listening on so that I create the right content for the, the platform, right? If everyone's listening on YouTube and I'm producing audio only, I'm, I'm going to have a, a bad time, right? Uh, if I'm producing like 4K video and everyone's listening on Spotify, I don't need to produce 4K video for Spotify because it's listen only. So those would be examples of where you, you're someone, a person is not clear about the outcome. And then because they're not clear about the outcome, they don't know what recipe to use, right? And they don't know what ingredients to use, what appliances to use, or even how to go about it. It's like if you were given a recipe, but you didn't know what the dish is supposed to look like when it's done, it, it, we've seen all those memes on like Instagram, like, you know, how it, how it should look and then how the, the person's attempt <laughs> to make it look came out. Uh, that's what happens with, with, 
data and analytics is that people don't know what the outcome is supposed to look like. And so they don't know how to make it. So then when we're looking for outcomes, obviously, we can all point the fingers back at ourselves. But when we're looking for the outcome, it sounds like if I'm interpreting this correctly and what you're saying, really, we should go into looking at data with understanding, like, what do we even want to do with this? Like, not just let's measure everything and then see what we have, but really flip it around and almost form our our own hypothesis and our own conclusions and then testing it out. Correct? That's correct. You're following the scientific method, which is I have a question, I develop a hypothesis, I test the hypothesis, and I prove or disprove it. And a lot of folks, you know, kind of what Jay was alluding to at the start of the show, you know, a lot of folks were, you know, entered marketing assuming there would be no math and instead have discovered that that there is a lot of scientific testing and stuff in it if you want to do it well. Um, and and you want to be able to prove your points and you want to be able to repeat the processes you got to that outcome so that you can do it again. You know, if you bake a cake once, it might turn out well or it might not turn out well. If you bake a cake a thousand times, you're going to run into pretty much every conceivable way for it to go wrong. And by the end of that process, A, you'll have diabetes and B, you will know very clearly all the ways that cakes should and should not be made. Chris, since the show is a social pro, as many of our listeners are using for good or evil, uh, social media generated data to try and learn lessons or prove points or prove lessons or learn points. From your experience, and I know you've done this a lot with the team at Trust Insights, what are some of the actual lessons that can be reliably learned from available social media data? Social media is great for qualitative research, right? To see what the conversations are about. It is very, very bad at quantitative data, right? And think about it, right? Let's say you have a product, you know, have these new earbuds, right? There's going to be some section of, com- of people who are going to complain loudly. Ah, oh, these things suck, right? I, I hate the frequency response. The noise cancellation is not great, et cetera. And there's going to be some people saying, these are the best things since sliced bread, right? You know, the, the audio response is great. The compatibility is great. <clears throat> so you'll get all of these conversation points. But when you, th- when you step back and do like a representative survey of the population, the people who hate it, the people who love it are like the 5% on either end of the spectrum. And then there's 90% in the, in the middle that doesn't care, right? And they're the vast majority of the audience that don't have an opinion and therefore don't voice it on social media. And if you're trying to do quantitative assessments of a product or service or a company <clears throat> from these very polarized conversations, you're not going to get good data. Second issue with social media in particular, particularly public social media, is that public social media has become highly polarized and very performative. People say and do things just to you know, gain algorithm brownie points, right? I need, uh, I need to, to, to do something on LinkedIn that stimulates discussion so that I get likes so that my posts get seen. Private social media, things like Slack, Discord, OnlyFans, Telegram, Signal, etc., where there is no algorithm and you don't get brownie points for talking just for the sake of talking, you'll get more honest conversation that way. Um, for example, I was recently in a Discord channel uh, that had like 7,000 members. It was all about Squishmallows, the, the toys. And the amount of conversation that was unfiltered happening behind closed doors was fascinating. People were talking about timing when their local Target retail store would get its truck deliveries 
of their toy department stuff so that they could be there when the trucks were being unloaded to get first grab at this particular, uh, it was a pumpkin spice latte squishmallow they were after. Uh, it was a limited run. As a social media manager, you have to know the different social platforms, what data is available, how credible it is, and then how do you how do you know where to be for all these different topics of conversation? And it's getting very, very challenging to do that. So much more conversation is now happening behind closed doors and in networks where marketers don't have insight unless they do the legwork of getting, you know, getting into those systems and, and participating that relying on social media data for quantitative assessment is extremely risky. Is the answer then that that brands must create some kind of participatory account in Reddit, Discord, Twitch, etc., all these other places, um, Slack, and, and obviously try to quote-unquote market in there because that typically is viewed as uh, lesser than but but at least try and pay attention and, and use it as a as a listening tool, sort of like the old school discussion boards and forums that you and I are certainly familiar with. So there's three there's a three pronged approach here. Number one, yes, brands should absolutely be out there listening. Um, that's that's sort of table minimum. You've you've got to be out there listening, and because of the nature of platforms like Slack and Discord in particular, which have millions of server instances, you're going to need to probably hire up. You're going to need to, to team, you know, scale up your hiring a little bit because it's a, there's a lot of manual legwork. There is no automation. There is no fancy tool that can just go in and you know scrape the top million Discord servers. Uh, and, and that's not a great idea anyway. Number two, brands have to be all in on brand itself. Your brand is the most important thing that you can invest in in 2023, 2024, and so on and so forth because you can't be everywhere. Right, there are like eighty thousand new Discord servers created every month. You can't be anywhere, everywhere. What is everywhere is your brand. What is everywhere is your reputation. And if you're doing a great job of building brand, then as people have conversations without you there, they can talk about you. And as long as your product and service doesn't suck, um, they, you will you will have uh, you will essentially be in those conversations without having to be there for those conversations. And then the third prong is you have to own your own community, right? You have to build a community of your own. Uh, for example, we have the Trust Insights Slack group, Analytics for Marketers. It's now, we're now at about 3,000 members. Like we've been working on this thing for three and a half years now. <clears throat> when we just did our uh, research paper called uh, Members Only, The Rise of Private Social Media, 9.2% of Americans use Discord once a week or more. That's 24 million Americans use Discord once a week or more. Um, 15.5 million Americans use Slack once a week or more. You know, as for contrast, uh, Edison Research uh, calculated 74 million people listen to a podcast once a week or more. So these private social networks are getting, you know, a good chunk of usage that is in the millions of people, and this is just in America, not counting internationally. And so, if you're not building your own community that you have some level of control over, you're missing the boat, right? You're missing the the way people are using social media has dramatically changed from even five years ago. And that's before, you know, billionaires started buying things. So I'm curious then, before every single person listening right now goes and runs out and sets up a Slack channel and starts inviting everybody to it, 
what are some things that they need to know? And what are some things that you have learned from running that Slack channel and really participating in it? And in order to bring in and really truly own some of these communities where you can get some more honest conversations. So the the thing you have to be very clear about with running a community is, is threefold. One, you've got to have very clear sets of rules. What are the rules for the community? Um, you know, for example, in analytics for marketers, we have a channel where people can spam. Like it's, you know, it's called, what are you working on? But yeah, if you want to pimp your blog post, you can do it there. You're not allowed to do it in other places. You could, we have to give marketers an outlet. It's just kind of a reflex that marketers have. Um, second is you have to decide what the culture is. The culture, if you have explicit rules, culture is the unwritten rules, you know, who is going to be running this thing? How much time are you going to invest in it? Because a community is like a farm. It it flourishes in proportion to the amount of time you invest in it, right? If you just plant a bunch of seeds and walk away and come back in six months, you may or may not have anything to come back to. But if you're out there every day tending to it, watering it, fertilizing it, weeding it, et cetera, you'll be much more likely to have some kind of useful outcome at the end. And the third and the most important by far is what is the value proposition for the member? why are you better than the, the the current season of Warrior Nun, right? Why are you better than um, a, a Discord channel about knitting? Why are you better than, the, you know, the, the 15 most uh, current things on TikTok? Attention is the most scarce resource we have. And right now, when you set, if you set up a community, you have to figure out, what is so compelling about that community that would make you want to spend time there that and not somewhere else? And a lot of marketers not figured that out. Um, very often, it's going to be about a topic that is adjacent to what your offering is, but you also have to have plenty of room for humanity. You have to have plenty of room for having stuff. You know, we have one channel in our Slack for analytics. We have eight channels for other stuff like books people are reading. Uh, you know, fun jokes, memes. You know, a place where you can just rant um, because ultimately we have to acknowledge that people bring a good chunk of themselves to to work and to a community, not just their narrow uh, topic focus. And if you want to build a strong community, you have to let people be more of themselves. It's like everything old is new again. Because a lot of these best practices are the exact same best practices that we had for like AOL, you know, groups yes. and, you know, uh, and, and the original <laughs> online communities, which are mostly discussion boards and, and forums, you know, it's like the same thing that we had 10, 20 years ago is back again. And I just wonder if maybe the natural order of things is that, that we as human beings, at least in the Western society, prefer the more bespoke highly specific, um, almost self-organizing communities over what we've had in the intervening years, which is this big public you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at all scenario that really is a bullia base of marketing and, and community um, where the people are, in fact, the product. Uh, and, and so it almost looks like, like a bell curve, right? We started with private social networks we went to public social networks and now we're going back to private social networks. And so I wonder if the exception to the rule is, is, is Facebook, that that's the exception, not, not the natural order of things. I just, I wonder where we'll be in another five or 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's not even Western. It's that's everything. If you look at how people behave 
tribe or group or locality has always been our default, right? That has always been how we've clustered. Now, geographically, we've done that, but think about your average college campus, right? How often does the entire campus get together? Depending on the school, maybe football games, right? Um, uh, maybe the spring, art, the spring arts festival or whatever. How often do private gatherings happen? All the time, right? This is your fraternity is having this party Friday night. The arts group is meeting over here. The theater is doing its thing. By nature, we automatically cluster and segregate ourselves, right? That's just how we behave as, as a species. You have things like you know Dunbar's number, which pro, uh, effectively prohibits us from scaling our attention massively. I think public social media, when we look back in 50 years, probably will have been an anomaly, right? It probably will have been the exception to the rule. The big public water cooler is is an oddity. You know, we have newer networks like Mastodon, which are functionally more like email, right? Everyone has their own server and you have your own private community and you have your rules set community. And this is a federated network, again, like email is like you, you and I can email each other, but we don't typically email, you know, a lot to each other a lot in in one location. So uh, I think as social networks evolve, we will see more and more of that. You know, Discord is probably the best example. 80,000 new Discord servers in the last month, and they're on every topic you could possibly imagine. Um, I'm, in, uh, I'm in probably 35 uh, different servers, and, and they're on wildly different topics with wildly different people in them. And they don't interact. There's not much crossover. Right? There's people stay in their in the communities where they feel safest. And one of the things that I think has marketers in particular underestimate is the need for people to feel a sense of psychological safety. Right. When you participate in social media and you want to be real, you want to be uh, yourself as a person and you get some troll, uh, you know, deciding to to make fun of you. Oh, like, you know, look at this, this look at this Asian guy. Right. Um and saying all sorts of of, of inappropriate uh, slurs about that. I would not choose to hang out with that person or be in an environment where that person is hanging out, right? So I'm going to go to places where I feel welcome for who I am. And I think that's as we see more and more people also becoming more self-aware, you know, you, uh, folks who are not as progressive will call it being woke, the rest of us call it empathy. Um, they are... People are segregating out to saying, I want to be in places where I feel like I am welcome. And for brands, this is now a real challenge, right? Brands now have to figure out how do we provide a sense of psychological safety, especially if you're going to run a community. Um, and how do we show up in ways in each of these communities that has our buyers and be useful to them? It's interesting, although it doesn't have the same kind of community dynamics. To me, th this is also why TikTok has become so enormously popular, because its organizing principle is topical interest, not personal connections, right? Facebook was the Facebook, right? And the whole premise was it's people you know or are proximate to geographically on the same college campus, the same city, et cetera. LinkedIn is for people ostensibly that you actually know or at least want to know in a business context. It's not about are you particularly interested in, you know, in plush toys or ninja swords or one of the other many, many topics that Chris Penn is interested in. In my case, it would be tequila. So to me, that's where TikTok got it right. And, and Instagram is now uh, trying <laughs> to catch up and has very much changed their algorithm over the last 
six months to try and mimic that topical orientation as opposed to the personal ties orientation, somebody you actually know and follow, they're in your same town, et cetera. Um, people care about stuff more than they care about people. Like there's a pretty small yes. group of people that we actually care about. And Facebook sort of faked that for a long time. And you get all these messages from somebody you went to high school with and you kind of sort of care, but kind of also don't care. Uh, and, and when everybody sort of went to their own corners uh, politically, uh, you, you saw the, the weakness of that model, right? Like I didn't really like them much before. And now that I know what they think, I don't like them at all. Right. But I do. But I am interested in in stamp collecting and the political side of it doesn't matter so much there because we're all down with stamps. Exactly. And we've seen this with networks like Reddit. You know, Reddit is topically organized um, and it is enormously successful because of that. You see that to some degree on any network that uses hashtags as a means of discovery, um, because that's how people find things. You see that with Slack. You see that with Discord, with Telegram, et cetera. And it's it it's interesting because you have this dichotomy of a a creator economy where people are trying to focus on the creator like I, this is the the person that's creating the thing and then of course you have the topic of the thing like um and anybody can be very briefly popular on a given um topic but that maybe that's not their whole uh, whole thing YouTube has been wrestling with this um in terms of their own algorithm and and you know various people give different advice like should you stay on topic on your channel or, you know, should you have separate channels for different topics or do you just kind of, you know, throw it out there and see what happens. But you can definitely see in YouTube's algorithmic results, it is focused on topic organization, right? When you look at your recommended videos, the moment you watch one particular kind of video, you start to see that topic from different creators because YouTube's trying to surface the stuff that is topically relevant. Um, and uh, again, with the private social media servers, you know, they, they are topically organized. They're not personally organized for the most part. I mean, there are some folks who have, you know, who are personalities, who have a community around that personality, but they're, re they're, they're few and far between. It's, um, there's so much in my head right now that I want to ask, but I think I'm going to bring it really quick back to the measurement piece of this and really looking at analytics, because as we've talked about, the shifting shape of the social media landscape right now and, you know, kind of moving back into private social and and just how volatile things are right now, especially with Twitter. As of the time of this recording, it's the end of November. There's been a lot of things happening, a lot of news over the last month. I think um, the volatility will continue regardless of when you listen to this episode, but I do appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to be sensitive. Um, it's a really volatile time right now um, in a lot of the social media, uh, just on platforms. And, and I know teams are really struggling right now. And with this shift from, you know, public to private and then, I mean, people mass abandoning Twitter right now, how should social media pros really be looking at measurement and reporting? You know, obviously, we've talked about making sure that they're involved in these communities or potentially looking at taking some community management, taking a page from old school um, you know, social approaches, but how should we be looking at measurement right now? Because it's kind of the wild, wild west. So the short answer is the most useful thing any marketer and any salesperson can do is have a question at intake. What made you come in today? Right? What made what you know, what how did you hear about us is, is good? What made you come in today? Was it a post that you saw on Reddit? And, and it's not a dropdown. It is a free form text field so that people can write anything that they want in there. 
And that's where you're going to collect data. Like, oh, a friend of mine told me on Discord that, uh, you know, this was a tequila I should try. Um, Jay Bear told me uh, that you know, this tequila was was okay, but cheap. And and that's that's sort of my, <laughs> that's where I am in my tequila, my tequila journey. Okay, but cheap is good enough. Um, whatever the case is, you need to have that input from the person themselves and use that as part of what guides your attribution model. Because what people are seeing more and more in their analytics, particularly web analytics software, is unattributed traffic. Traffic where the software has no idea where the person came from. And that the percentage of that is going to grow larger and larger and larger. It's going to, you're going to see a big jump in the next six months, in the first half of 2023, because five new, new privacy laws take effect um, on January 1 in five different states um, that will uh, essentially bring GDPR-like laws to New York, California's got a new one, Virginia, uh, and there's two other states that have um, enhanced privacy laws. That doesn't ac- account for you know uh, Europe continuing to, to throttle down on GDPR enforcement. China's got its um, PIPL law, which has been enforcing rigorously. And that one's that was a law that's got some serious teeth in it, right? If you violate PIPL and one of your executives shows up on Chinese soil, they go to jail, right? And and Chinese jail is not not a place you want to spend a whole lot of time. Um, but those privacy laws mean that, uh, among other things, you know, consent forms uh, popping up on sites. Hey, we want to give you cookies. Um, are going to be, and more people are just going to say no. Um, there are some great new extensions in Chrome and stuff that say automatically decline all cookies, automatically decline all tracking, and then you just have this thing running. Ad blockers now, something like 40% of users are using some kind of ad blocker. And uh, some of them, like Ghostry, block Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager right out of the gate. They just don't permit it to run. So you are going to have, marketers are going to, have to be facing um, less and less usable data on an individual level, which means we're going to have to get really good at techniques um, like marketing mix modeling, uh, which is a type of machine learning that is privacy friendly um, and and very robust, but it, it, there's a lot of math involved in it. And uh, to, to circle back to the beginning of the show, the reason why I love AI and machine learning is they do the math for us, right? They let the machines do the math for us. We just write the code. But that's where marketers need to be thinking. I mean, one of the big things that is on my to-do list over the next six months is build some more robust modeling capabilities that are privacy-friendly, that can answer questions like, what's working right now? Uh, A big one that we focus a lot of time on is attribution analysis on a a channel-level basis to say, okay, 22% of your uh, leads can be attributed to this channel, but forty percent of your budget's going into it. So you got a mismatch. You got you, you probably want to right size your investment in that channel down to the results that it actually gives, and and look elsewhere in your in your attribution to say like, hey, this channel is delivering four percent of your results, but you're investing nothing in it. Let's add some more people or time or budget to this channel and see if that ratio of you know very high return for investment uh, goes stays consistent. If it does. Then that may be a, a little uh, hidden winner, a hidden gem in plain sight, and that's where marketers need to be thinking today and soon about getting this deployed because you don't have much time um, before these new privacy laws fully take effect. Chris, in organizations, do you feel, and, and perhaps it differs <clears throat> based on the type of organization or its size, but as a general rule, would you rather have a centralized analytics? person or people 
or have lots of people in the organization uh, with at least some analytics experience, background, skill set, so that everybody's kind of rolling their own? I'm going to give you a thoroughly unsatisfying answer. It depends, right? Um, it depends on what, uh, on how central data and analytics is to the mission. It's like saying, would I rather have one master chef in in you know in in the restaurant franchise? Or would I rather have a bunch of folks who can cook a little bit something? Well, if I'm just running a snack bar, right, or I'm running a college dorm, um, then yeah, I can a bunch of people who can cook a little bit is fine. If I'm running a Michelin starred restaurant, I need a master chef. Right? I can't, I cannot get away with a bunch of people who can cook a little bit of something. So when we're looking at an organization, how central is data and analysis and insight to your strategy. If you have a, a a situation where your stakeholders basically make decisions without data, like, oh, we're just going to do this, then yeah, in that organization, you can have a bunch of people who just do a little bit of stuff and it's not going to harm you because the, the decisions are not being made with data anyway. If, on the other hand, that level of data processing is core to the organization, like a Google, for example, where machine learning is core to the essence of that of that organization. You've got to have centralization because you will not function otherwise. If you need some chefs in your own company to help make sense of what people are saying in private social networks, if you need chefs and cooks to help your organization understand how to better use data and analytics, get a hold of Chris Penn and Katie Robert at Trust Insights. They can set you straight. I know that to be true. What I also know to be true is that all these many 600 episodes or whatever we're at now on this show, we always ask our guests the same two questions at the end, including Chris in the past when he's been on the show. We'll see what he answered previously and see if there's been changes in his viewpoint on the world. Chris, question number one, what tip would you give somebody who is looking to become a social pro? The thing I would spend a lot of time on today is understanding how to convey your brand at a personal level, right? Um, how your brand can be made personal because people don't buy from brands. Brands are, uh, they're sort of an encapsulation of an idea. People buy for themselves and ideally from other people, right? So what does a brand mean to you? Um, the, the best definition I've ever heard is from Zay Frank. Way back in 2006, he said, a brand is the emotional aftertaste of a series of experiences, which is why he said, you can sell grandma's cookies, but you can't sell old people's cookies. Very different brand, uh, right? Still both technically true. Um, what is your brand's emotional aftertaste and how do you convey that in social media? Right. There are some brands that have done this brilliantly. Stakem, for example, is a, a brand that has this bizarre um, uh, point of view that leaves an aftertaste that is just as confusing as the actual product. Right? <laughs> it's like thinly shaved frozen beef <laughs> offering philosophical and political commentary. Um, so that would be the advice is, is figure out as a social media professional how to communicate the, that emotional aftertaste in your work because there's a ton of brands that when you look at their public social channels i mean you could scratch off the name and it'd be every other competitor uh in that space and be it's all the same quick plug we interviewed nathan alabach from stakem on the social pros podcast all about how they conquered twitter uh and it's really one of my favorite episodes uh it came out february of 2022 so check the archives for that you will love it uh, he is an amazing and fascinating person. 
uh, Chris, he's he reminds me of you in that he has very, very wide ranging interests. Uh, if you haven't met Nathan, we'll try and broker that because you two would get along like a, like a house of fire. So we'll, we'll work on that. Last question for Chris Penn. Uh, if you could do a video call with any living person, who would it be? A video call with any living person. Um, here's the challenge with that. The, the people that... Uh, the questions that I have are not things that any one person would be able to offer any useful insight on. But I would say if I had, if, if there were no constraints and I could be uh, guaranteed an actual intellectual conversation, one of the more interesting people might be Pope Francis because uh, I have some, some very serious questions about the implementation of his particular faith. Um, I am not of that faith. I am Buddhist. Um, but observing what's written in the sort of the, the manual and observing the implementation of that. Um, there's a very, very, very wide gulf. Um, uh, and, and I have data questions like there's, there's uh, this, the original, the manual is originally written in coin Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, right? Which, you know, three different languages, none of which is really spoken in that, in those formats. And then you have a gazillion translations and all of these strange permutations and edits and things that have created a, a lot of confusion over the centuries. And I would love to ask somebody who is essentially a scholar in the head of that organization. Um, so in Koin Greek, from the pre-Council of Nicaea edition, this is what it was said. And this is what it says in 2022 in like the American watered down version that everybody you know yells about, but doesn't, clearly doesn't understand that. There is no equivalent word in Koine Greek for what is in the American version. How do you reconcile what was said 15 centuries ago with what is uh, what people are interpreting incorrectly these days? It's like the worst ever Wikipedia entry, right? Look, <laughs> <laughs> like, the Bible is the worst Wikipedia entry ever. It really is. It's like everybody's making edits and like, yeah, sure, it's got to be true, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, fine. Exactly. I mean, if folks are interested, search <laughs> Google for the Council of Nicaea, which was Emperor Constantine's convocation. I think this is the fourth or the fifth century, um, where they basically took a, the existing text and threw out a bunch of stuff that, that didn't fit their worldview at the time. Because uh, what got thrown out was really interesting stuff. If you've studied, if you ever study comparative religion, the stuff that got thrown out was the really useful stuff. Um, and, and I think it's it, it's worth uh, it, again if that's of an interest uh, area of study for you, that is something that is worth reading because you read and go, huh, that's very different than what's in 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 the the stock standard uh, edition of the manual. There you go, Chris Penn live video call with Pope Francis. Uh, that'll be next Tuesday, 2 p.m. Uh, ne next Tuesday, 2 p.m. Uh, stream to LinkedIn. Check it out. It's going to be amazing. Uh, tune in to the Discord <laughs> server for the post-conversation. Post Chris, thanks so much for coming back on the show. We love having you here on Social Pros and setting us straight uh, on all things analytics, data, uh, and beyond, despite the fact that uh, your college statistics career was much less successful than I would have envisioned. Uh, we do appreciate your wisdom and uh, your friendship. Thank you for having me on.